Hello, hello, hello. It's Angela Valenti Romeo, and this is Colliding Worlds, and bringing you all kinds of things. I'm going to bring on my guest right now. And I want everybody to welcome. I'm hoping I'm not going to ruin his name here. Gary Schneeberger. <laughs> Bravo. Well done. Ah, awesome. I only practiced for like five days. Um, <laughs> didn't want to do the Howard Stern thing. Um, yes. Gary is like, he wrote books and I'm not talking about like, you know, little tiny romance novels that you see. I'm talking about big ass thick books yep. here. And they're very interesting. He's written a book about Bruce Willis, about the about the career of Frank Sinatra, about the Bond, and he he wrote a book that I found really incredibly interesting called "Bite the Dog." Um, Gary's been a journalist. He's I don't know, man. What what don't you do? I don't dance, um, and I don't know how to fix a car. My, I always joke that when it comes to you know, I can write you a mean sentence. But if you want me to fix a car, my way of fixing the car is, and how much was that? And I write a check. That's uh, that's that's my level of expertise when it comes to fixing things that are mechanical. So I'm good with uh, with words, but not very good with uh, with anything that has an engine. <laughs> <laughs> I liked it in the old days. My first car is a '64 and a half Mustang, and even I could lift up the hood and find things. Now I got a car; it's a hybrid. I'm like, what the heck to do right. with it? I'm like. Yeah. And I take it to the car dealer and I'm like, uh, how much? Okay. <laughs> you move yeah. on. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> you know, let, let's start here at the beginning. You were born. No. Um, yep. How did and you? Then the, and then the lava cool. Yeah. I was born. Yep. Yeah. Now you sound like my dad. Oh my God. We used to, we used to tease my dad all the time. My mom would say he was older than Methuselah. Um, yep. How did you embark on this career? I mean, to me, there are certain careers you can do your whole life. And right. it's always intriguing. And writing and journalism, I think, is just two avenues that mm -hmm. just never have an ending. Yeah. Well, first of all, Angela, thank you for having me on. Um, <laughs> uh, it's, it's a pleasure to have our worlds collide. Um, I'm, I'm, thank I'm excited. you. Um, and how I got started writing was sort of a simple story. Um, I had a bit of an affinity for it uh, and, a, and a, an incipient talent for it as a kid in grade school. Back here behind me in one of the files back there is the first story I ever wrote in like first grade. It's called The Pig. And The Pig is not, it doesn't have a very good plot. And there's a lot of phonetic misspellings in it. But my mom kept it. My mom, you know, put it between two uh, two pieces of paper as a cover, and I've held onto it ever since then. But my mom recognized my my fascination with my my again incipient juvenile talents with writing. And when I was uh, about ten years old, she bought me this will date me now an electric typewriter which I used, uh, I mean, that typewriter unlocked a, an entirely new world for me. Uh, had a lot of friends growing up in the neighborhood, um, but I then used that typewriter, believe it or not, it was the, at the height in the late 70s of TV cop shows. So I would write scripts uh, of for my friends and I to act out about the cops that we were. I created names of two cops and they actually called them Ba, which was short for Beretta, which was a show at the time, and Fum, which was the short, 
a shortened version of my friend Billy Fumo's name. And I still have those scripts back there as well. So that got me started rolling on arranging words into sentences. Uh, and it, 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 it has never stopped uh, from that moment on until this day today. It's coding. My first typewriter is the Smith Corona manual mm. blue. <laughs> but it, but it's, it's something that gets in your blood. It, yep. it, it doesn't leave you. And I think creativity is, is one of those things that unfortunately people dismiss. I mean, when your mom saw it, when you a spark and she encouraged it, a lot of times yep. children will have a spark to be artistic or creative. And somewhere down the line, someone goes, mm, get a real job. Right. You know? Yep. And it, it's, yeah. it's a shame. And she kept doing that. You know, you mentioned that I had a newspaper career in my newspaper career. Even it, it took me from our hometown near our hometown in Wisconsin to Iowa, to Texas, to California. And uh, while my mom was still alive, um, she died in 93. She always subscribed to the papers that I worked for and had them in the front seat of her car. When she, so when she drove around and she bumped into a friend, she could pull it out and say, look what my son did. Even after, this is so funny, Angela, even after I became an editor and my name didn't show up on stories anymore because I wasn't writing stories, I was editing them. She still got the newspapers and still pulled them out to show people, even though there was no bylines for me in the paper. <laughs> <laughs> you got to love it. You got to love a mother, you know, that yes. they, they're so supportive like that. I, I think that that's, that's kind of like a great thing, but because somebody supported you and someone said to you, yes, you can do it. And even if you have the talent, you still need the support and you still need someone to be, to be your cheerleader. Right. And, and that was a great cheerleader to have. Yeah. I mean, it's not, you know, it, it wasn't easy landing my first newspaper job. Um, mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, I was like two days away from my brother. My older brother was a car salesman and I, I graduated from college and I was getting close to, oh, I'm going to have to, he's like, you can come sell cars for me. So I was like three days away from becoming a car salesman when I got a job at a, a newspaper, daily newspaper, not far from my hometown in Wisconsin, um, because a, a woman who was a reporter there went on maternity leave. So they needed someone for three months. I worked there for three months, made a bit of a name for myself. She came back. I left she realized she missed her child and she went back to, to home to take care of her child. So they hired me full time. And that started what was then my what was my newspaper career for, um, you know, uh, 16, 15, 16 years. And then I switched as my friends who are still in newspapers say I went to the dark side. <laughs> I, I, I became I, I became a PR guy. Um, I went to the dark side of public relations and I still do that uh, through my company Roar. So uh, when I'm not writing books, that's what I'm doing is my day job. Your day job. I love it. But, you know, as a, as a reporter, that, that brought you into contact with all sorts of people and all sorts of things. And you have a job as a reporter. And, and that is to accurately record what's happening and right. to be non, you know, to be, as, as, as my, my partner's business card says, be an innocent bystander. Um, how tough is that to maintain that kind of a level of seeing all sides? Yeah, it, it, I was tutored. I didn't go to school to be a, a journalist. Uh, I, I went to school to be a teacher, didn't do that, got the job in the newspaper because I didn't want to sell cars. And um, 
I was mentored in the newsroom by a veteran reporter who uh, you know, taught me some, 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 they were aphorisms, yes, but they were truths as well. And one of them was, you know, there's no cheering in the press box. I wasn't a sports reporter, but, you know, when you're in the press box, even if you love the Chicago Cubs, you don't cheer for the Chicago Cubs. If you're covering the game, you, you're, you're, you're neutral. And I also learned that uh, as, a, as a court reporter, I had, uh, he was a court reporter, this, this man who mentored me, Gary Metro. Shout out to Gary Metro which is the, one of the best newspaper names ever. Um, Gary okay. taught me, Gary taught me that, you know, I wasn't going to be unbiased, meaning we all had bias when I was covering a trial and I'll never forget it. When, when an elderly woman testified how she was attacked by a man who, you know, forced her to do terrible things, ripped her false teeth out of her mouth, did things like that. I was sat there, saw my grandmother and I wanted that man to fry as a as Gary Schneeberger, but as a reporter for the newspaper, I had to set that aside and be. I couldn't be objective because I had bias. I didn't like him, but I had to be fair. To your point, I had to be fair. So I made sure when I wrote that story, it was as simple as counting through. If if there are are four quotes from the defense's side, I had four quotes from the prosecution side. So I made sure that those things lined up. If I was going to take the best things said by the side I agreed with, I better take the best things said by the side I don't agree with. And that's one of the things that over the years has frustrated me in PR is that some reporters, not all, I still believe most reporters are fair, but some of them would, you know, some of them have taken the best thing, someone who's on the other side of an issue than I am, put those in their stories and then take the dumbest thing I say and put that in a story. Mm-hmm. And that's, that stacks the table in the wrong way. So I always tried to be, I knew I couldn't be objective, but I knew I could always be fair. And that was my goal. It's tough. I mean, it, when I, I practice law for a long time and, um, uh, juries, especially you, you had to look at their faces and you would see already they had decided you know, right. your guy was guilty. And I remember one case I had, which was, there were six kids. It was a fight. There was a knife. Somebody lost a finger. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I, everybody, I was the only female lawyer. I brought my guy guy in and at the end five were convicted and my guy got off. Hmm. And I was, wow, I must be Clarence Darrow. Here I am, 20-something years old, like, whoa, I'm cool. And you pulled the jury, and what they had done was uh, the women looked at me and said, you remind me of my granddaughter. Oh, wow. So it didn't matter. <laughs> it was it was who they, who they could connect with, which was, again, kind of part of being a good trial lawyer and being a good writer, having a good story, but having something that people can relate to. And, and and that's kind of where PR comes into it, I think. I mean, right. maybe I'm wrong. You you have to create something that people can relate to. And so when you switch from being a journalist to, to doing public relations, I wouldn't say you went to the dark side, but you definitely you definitely jumped on one side of the fence. Right. And, and how 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 and why that transition? Well, um, I'll give you the, uh, the 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 mostly joking answer I tell friends. I love PR because I get to hang out with journalists all day, but I don't have to get paid like one, which is awesome. (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, but, but the reality of it is, I mean, one of the things I try, you know, there were a lot of things I did not like about story pitches that came my way uh, when I was a reporter. And I've tried, I try to correct that in the way that I 
pitch the way that I put stories, potential stories in front of journalists. And my, my rule is I never ask for anything. I always offer them something. And what I'm offering them isn't, isn't even something for them, right? They're not my goal, right? As a PR guy, the journalist's not my goal. That what my goal, and in my book, Bite the Dog, that you mentioned, thank you, um, my goal is to get to their audience. I've got to pass through there. They are, they are, if you will, if we're playing football, while I'm on the, I'm on the two yard line. They're the defense. The reporters are, I have to get through them. I have to get my message through them to their audience so that, that, that their audience will learn about what my client is doing, what my client, you know, what my client thinks is important, the products, the services, whatever it is that my client is, is trying to, to, to put out there in the media sphere. So um, uh, it, it is, it's, it's not a transactional relationship. It shouldn't be, it should be a, a, no adjective, just a relationship that you're, they trust you to provide good guests, um, uh, good talent, good people for them to then give their readers some insight and action steps. And I'm going to, I'm going to bring up a name here that, and I bring it up not because uh, of because uh, this is not a political ideological statement at all. In my book, Bite the Dog, one of the best endorsements I got was from Sean Hannity. You don't have to love Sean Hannity to continue to listen to this anecdote because it it it, it it's what I strive for as a PR uh, agent, and that's this. Sean said, "If Gary calls you um, and offers you a guest, take it." Because he has good guests, he knows what you know. He he does his research. He knows what it is that you, as a as a news as a news person, are going to want your listeners, viewers, readers to know about. So that to me meant everything. Because someone who's in the trenches, putting people on the air in a in a ratings battle every night, said, praised me as someone who other journalists, regardless of ideological stripe could trust to give them guests that were newsworthy and worthwhile. Not something to be said to bring, to bring these things to light. And again, it's your job in PR is not the same as being a journalist. You have a point of view. Um, I really enjoyed the book. I'm going to tell you again, um, if you haven't read this book, Bite the Dog, I mean, read it. It's, it's a really interesting read. And the times when you're reading it, you're giggling. There yeah. are things about well, it that you. are so relatable and it doesn't seem, it's not pandemic. It's not like someone saying to you, you must do this and it must have that. It right. was really helpful to somebody, someone like me, um, who, you know, whose PR is not my thing. I try, I write my press releases. I do all these things. It's hard to represent yourself sometimes. But what I really found interesting about the book is it gave me two things. One, sometimes I'm doing things. Yes, I'm on the right track. And B, I need help. And C, sometimes I'm on the right track. <laughs> you know, I, right. I really found it helpful. Now, I want to talk about before we move on to other things because there's so much. I want to talk about this book a little bit. A lot of people that I know are artists, and um, mm-hmm. and I use that term collectively. They could be writers, they're painters, they're sculptors, they're actors, and they're they're far more talented than the people you read about all the time. And I've right. always maintained that the difference was they had better PR. Mm-hmm. And how, how does someone, you know, who's, how does someone, how does someone garner PR? How does someone find somebody to be their advocate? Because I, I think you as a PR, you are an advocate. Um, 
how does one do that? And then it comes down to um, there's a cost associated with that. So how do how do you factor all of these things in? Yeah, the I mean, the book is designed to to give the reader enough information, right? Sufficient information to help them do what you just talked about to to build their own um, their own PR to understand certain things. Key tip, free tip, Google alerts. You want to know what's going on in your area of interest, right? You want to know what the media sphere is talking about. Go to Google, type in alerts, create a Google alert for the area of your business, uh, some part about your business that's not too general, right? A lawyer, you don't want to write lawyer as your Google alert because your your computer or phone will blow up all day with messages about with here's a story that appeared about lawyers, but find phrases that 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 get to the, the little corner of the, your career that you have, and you'll find out what's going on. Once you know what's going on in the culture, in the media, about what you're an expert in, about what your business does, then uh, I make a case in the book that there are three ways to do what I call committing news. First way, meet expectations, right? Um, yeah. I'll, I'll use an example um, from my own career. Uh, uh, I worked at a, at a at a global nonprofit, a Christian nonprofit called Focus on the Family. Um, right? What do we do? Well, meeting expectations, we give out advice uh, to, about marriage and parenting to people. Exceed expectations. What does that mean? That's the, that's a better way to commit news because it's more it's more robust. Um, not everybody's, you're not competing with as many people if you're exceeding expectations. What does that look like? Um, it's uh, giving away some of the content that we have for free, whereas other people charge for their content. That makes people go, oh, well, that's that's new. That's interesting. And then um, then there's exceed, um, um, upsetting expectations is the best way to commit news. And that's doing something that just seems to go contrary to what you do. And uh, I write in the book in some detail about how we did that. And that was a Super Bowl commercial more than 10 years ago now with Tim Tebow, uh, who was just coming off winning a Heisman. Uh, he had won a Heisman. He just graduated from college. And uh, he did a he did a pro-life commercial for Focus on the Family. And those who didn't think that was a proper thing to put on, they made the biggest mistake that you can make. As an or when it comes to getting in the getting caught up in news, they they protested something they hadn't seen. They thought the ad was going to be some screed that was so virulently anti-abortion, uh, and it wasn't. It was just a story about a mother and son who loved each other and the circumstances of Tim's birth involving his mom when she was overseas, and that touched off. I mean, every news outlet. If you could arrange three letters into a, to an acronym for a news outlet, they covered that story. We upset expectations because our critics thought we were going to go one direction and we went the other direction and that blew up. So those are ways you can do it. And the book, I'm not going to you know lie, the book is designed to give you enough to know that you probably need a little help. Um, uh, and, and you can find that help. Um, locally, you can find that help. Um, uh, you know, regionally, you can find that help nationally. And there are cost-effective ways to do it. And I hope there are other guys like me out there who, if there's, there's, I mean, I have, I have uh, corporate rates for clients, uh, but I also have, um, uh, you're doing really good uh, rates for clients and those are zeros. Uh, so, um, you know, if uh, there are, there are people out there who can help you do that sort of thing. And it, and it makes it, 
It's not just getting the attention for what you're doing, but helping you navigate how to do an interview and how to win the interview. I mean, one of the things I tell new clients um, or, or clients that I'm that I'm, I'm I'm pitching Angela is I can guarantee I can't guarantee much in in in, the, in in public relations, but I can guarantee this: I can guarantee never failed once. How do you make sure you control an interview that you do? Well, how would you answer? Well, you read the book, so you probably know the answer to that question. <laughs> Well, I'm going to tell you what I what I did when I was trying to be, when I was the one being interviewed is I kept trying to bring it back to the focus that I needed. Right. And sometimes it's easy, sometimes it's hard. Every once in a while, um, in during my career as a lawyer, I often did the PR for the firm. Yeah. You know, when they needed, I was the only woman, so that okay, off she goes and send her out there, and. What I found sometimes is that they underestimate you, and I'll go back. It's a sexist thing to say, but they would say, "Oh, it's a girl," yep. and mm -hmm. you know, we're going to make her cry. We're going to do whatever. Yeah. But it was always being able to, <laughs> you know. I always love those. I would just sit there, and I would, I would have. I had a my both. I had. I've been married a couple of times, but both my husbands always would say, "Don't ever underestimate her." Just yep. that's your biggest mistake. And yep. the thing I had to learn because I was very young. And I had to learn that I had to control the conversation and yep. you had to do it in a way that was disarming. Mm -hmm. And, and that, that was a hard thing to do. It's it, and now I'm on this side of it. And when I do it, I've done over 2000 interviews and I always try to tell people, just relax. I'm not here. I don't care what your point right. of view is. I don't care what your politics right. are. I want you to be you. This is your your time to shine. And this is where I go back and they go, well, my PR person said you're going to ask me this. And I'm like, I don't care about that. It's right. not important. And and there and I would if you were live in the studio and you came in with notes, I would take your notes away. Because <laughs> you're good for you, you. I always did. Because you were not listening to my question and you were then mm. not as yep. as the person being interviewed, you were not engaging and right. I, I could have just had a robot sit there you know i could have i could have made a little ai guy and, and done the same right. thing it's right. not the same i need you need to be able to control it. and it's a very difficult thing to do and i gotta tell you the times i did it my stomach was flipping i had butterflies mm -hmm. i wanted to cry i wanted to away i didn't want to do it but you stood up there and you did it and you it, it there's a skill to doing that but i also think Sometimes when people go on interviews, they're given a list of questions by their handler and say, that's it. No one's going to ask you anything else. And right. that's wrong. And then you get disarmed if somebody asks you a question not on that sheet. Right. So, Yeah. And the, that what you just explained, Angela, is 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 a very robust and very detailed answer to my answer to the question. How do you control an interview? Do it. Because guess what? The reporter needs you more than you need them in the sense of. If it, 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 and I would never do this to you, but if I sat here and just didn't say anything when you asked me questions, you wouldn't have a show. I mean, right. I wouldn't get my I wouldn't get my message out, but you wouldn't have a show. So one of the things that I coach people to do, along the, exactly what you talked about, <clears throat> I call it the bump and run. Um, it's they ask you a question. I mean, your job when you're being interviewed is to is to is to get your perspective and your your. Um, your information across. It's not necessarily to answer the questions 
of the person asking the the questions. Now that doesn't mean you want to just like ignore them and avoid them, but you can bump and run and go, <clears throat> you know, that's a very interesting perspective, Angela. But I like to think about this issue as, and then you just go off and you tell your, your side of the story. And I've had interviews like that where people were trying to get me and it's been fun because I've had to go like seven times, find different ways to redirect the question to, to get to. And I'm not trying to avoid the question as much as I'm trying to stick to what I think is going to be the most value to the people who are watching, reading, or listening. That's the perspective I'm trying to give to people. So I'm not trying, I don't teach people to be evasive. I teach them to stick to what they think is the most important stuff to get out. And I've got to believe the interviewer thinks that it's important stuff to, to get out too, because um, they wouldn't have booked you otherwise. I have a funny story to tell about an, an interview I did uh, on CNN's headline news one time. So they, I, I was at Focus on the Family and they booked me because there was these... And I'm going to give away the ending a little bit by saying